Open your Bibles, please, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Open your Bibles, navigate on your device. I feel like it's important that you follow along. The Lord wants to speak to you from his word, and so having it open and reading it will give him the opportunity to do just that. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, the topic, Jesus insists that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The title of our message, The Born Again Ultimatum. Father, thank you for bringing us together, this unique group of living stones uh, built on the foundation of your sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the dead. We're here to minister to you, to each other, and to receive ministry from you, Lord. And I pray that coming here, we would learn more how to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us, that our words would be seasoned with grace, that we would understand your grace more and more, even though it's in many ways incomprehensible. We love you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. No matter how much you claim to love me, you could never have a frost giant sitting on the throne of Asgard. That was the painful moment in the MCU when Loki realized he was the son of Laufey, king of Jotunheim, the realm of the frost giants. His natural birth disqualified him from ever becoming the king of Asgard. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God is the painful moment Nicodemus learned that his natural birth disqualified him. Jesus explained to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Elsewhere in the Bible we read, flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nicodemus must receive a spiritual birth. Being born spiritually is a favorite topic of the Apostle John. He speaks of being born of God seven times in the New Testament letter we call 1 John. And if my search was accurate, he is the only Bible writer to use that specific phrase, born of God. Language scholars point out that born again is interchangeable with born from above. Either is accurate. And so when you believe God, you are born of God. From an earthly perspective, we could say that you're born again. And from a heavenly perspective, we could say that you are born from above. Thus, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you must be born again to enter God's kingdom. And number two, you must be born from above to express God's kingdom. Let's take a look at being born again to enter the kingdom in verses one through seven. Nicodemus, was he conscientious or a coward? It's common to suggest that Nicodemus came by night because he was a coward who did not want to risk being seen with Jesus. While possible, the Bible never says anything like that. Of course he came by night. It was Passover, and as a teacher, he would be busy all day. Jesus was likewise working all day doing signs. At night, they could sit, relax, and talk. Uh, Christmas time. When I'm about, out and about, people say, oh, this must be a busy time for you because of all the Christmas services and different things going on. I officiated at a wedding yesterday. Now I'm here. That's the first time I can remember in a long time I had to work two days in a row. <laughs> I'm exhausted, but anyway. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. And so they're busy. I mean, these guys, they didn't just stand around. They were busy, and so of course they would talk 
at night when they could sit and relax. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Pharisees are known to us as the hyper-spiritual Jews. They believed their places were secure in the coming kingdom of God for two reasons. Number one, they were born God's chosen people. And number two, they meticulously kept God's law. Uh, we like to point out that the Pharisees started with good intentions. They wanted to honor God in their everyday actions. And so I don't know if it applies in every case, but when you read about the Pharisees and, and their objections, uh, you can look at what they're doing and think, well, I can see where they would want to keep that in their own personal lives as a way of honoring God or showing others, uh, you know, that they believe in God. The problem is they took it too far. Uh, and it led to self-righteousness. And it's going to lead us there too if having begun in the spirit, we allow ourselves to try to be made perfect in the flesh. Uh, example I use from time to time without being too pejorative, almost all the programmatic, uh, programmatic books that you find in Christian bookstores give you a list of things uh, that you're supposed to do for a period of time and at the end of that you feel and are more spiritual uh, and and I just I have a hard time with that because having begun in the spirit how are we made perfect in the flesh by doing certain things that other Christians are not doing uh, and so to me a lot of the programs that are out there are like the Pharisees tithing of their herbs and spices and so they're shaking the basil into their spaghetti sauce and then they save 10% of the leaves for God. Uh, and you think, well, that's crazy. But it's no crazier than some of the things that we're asked to do by Christian leaders today. So be careful. Uh, you know, have your discipline unto yourself and to God. Don't think that by following someone else's program, even if it worked for them, is what you need to do to be spiritual. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. According to one source, and I quote, there were two classes of Jewish courts called Sanhedrin, the Great Sanhedrin and the Lesser Sanhedrin. A Lesser Sanhedrin of 23 judges was appointed to sit as a tribunal in each city, but there was only supposed to be one Great Sanhedrin of 71 judges, which among other roles acted as the Supreme Court, taking appeals from cases which were decided by lesser courts. And so in a sense, you can think of it like our own court system. There are lower courts and then the Supreme Court. And so the greater Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court and Nicodemus was a member. And so he was kind of a big deal among Jews. Today, we would call him an influencer. His podcast, Nick at Night, would have been the most popular in Israel. It's easy to elevate individuals based on their outward achievements. Keep in mind that any of the five disciples following Jesus at the time were more spiritual than Nicodemus. You too are more spiritual if you follow the Lord. How smart can a person be if they haven't received Jesus? And so here's Nicodemus, uh, from every outward appearance, a great teacher, a learned man, a knowledgeable man, Here's Peter, an ignorant fisherman, uh, and yet Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're nowhere near the kingdom of God. Peter knew more about Jesus and the kingdom in the short time he'd been following them than any Nicodemus, than any Pharisee, uh, and so don't, you don't need to back off. A lot of times people say, oh, that guy is so smart. He ties me up in knots. Go, no, smart people, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I got a laugh out of this, but I meant it. Smart people are stupid. 
if they don't know Jesus, right? And so you know something they don't know that's more important than taking pi out to the 12th power, and that is that Jesus loves them and died for them. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Uh, these words seem sincere to me. Nicodemus acknowledged the signs Jesus was doing as evidence he was come from God and that God was with him. The scriptures predicted that the Messiah would perform the signs Jesus was performing. Nicodemus might have been giving Jesus the opportunity to identify himself as the Messiah. The Messiah would establish the kingdom of God on earth. Nicodemus assumed that he was ready for it. And so this is the kind of wording and conversation that a Jewish leader would have had with the potential Messiah. You might remember that later in the career of John the Baptist, after he was arrested and languishing in prison, he sent word to ask Jesus, are you the one? Now, he had introduced Jesus as the Messiah, but he wavered a little bit. And he said, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, go back and tell him the works that I am performing. Uh, and what Jesus meant was, I am performing the works that were prophesied of the Messiah. So yes, I am the Messiah. And so the same thing with Nicodemus. You're doing these works. It's clear that they're done from God. He doesn't need to ask, are you the one? It's implied. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is first an earthly kingdom to be ruled by a descendant of King David. In 2 Samuel, the Lord promised David, and I quote, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David's son Solomon was a partial fulfillment of this promise. He did build the house for the name of the Lord, the great temple. But this, uh, this word forever puts us into a future situation where the physical kingdom of God is coming to be ruled by a future son of David. That hasn't happened yet. And so this is a prophecy of a real earthly kingdom that is coming. Whatever born again might mean, Nicodemus wasn't. It was incredible to him to think he wasn't ready for God's kingdom. If anybody was going to step in and maybe be the prime minister even of the new kingdom, it was Nicodemus. And Jesus just looked at him with obviously grace and mercy and said, Nicodemus, you have to be born again first. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Commentators accuse Nicodemus of antagonism or sarcasm, but you can't conclude that from his words. Frustrated, maybe. Confused, for sure. But I think we read too much into it if we, if we see those other things. Have you written to someone or sent a text that was misunderstood? Have you been the victim of spell check? altering what you meant to say into something truly embarrassing. The other day, and it, it was an easy one, I was writing something, I, I thought I, I was dictating, it says, after all this, and it came out as asbestos. <laughs> I, I dictate a lot more now, because I, I miss you know, typing, and, and so I dictate, and I look down, and it's all underlined in blue, where it didn't understand me. 
And so now I, I, I do things like commentators accuse, you know, and it still gets it wrong. Man, you hit send on that, and then you look at people. I always respond to people with a question mark, and then they reread and they go, oh my gosh, I just said that to the pastor, and he's overworked this month, and so. Anyway, I, I'm not just pro-Nicodemus. It's just that some of the times you think, oh yeah, you know, he must have been really a sarcastic, antagonistic hater of Jesus. For all, it seems like he's very sincere and thinks that Jesus might be the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I am, but you're not ready. So let's do something about that. So verse 5, Jesus answered, Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This phrase, water and the Spirit, has dozens of complex scholarly interpretations. It has one biblical interpretation, Jesus may have been giving Nicodemus and us a clue where to look for it in the Old Testament. The Bible had no chapter and verse divisions until they were added in 1227 AD to make it easier to reference passages. Before that, you had to know where a passage was from its key words. And so if I get up here next week and say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you would go to that passage in the Bible. You wouldn't turn to John 3.16. You wouldn't have tabs on your Bible like that because they didn't exist. They were books, but there weren't chapter and verses. And so the Jews regularly, you know, when they were going to teach, they would throw out the words that they were going to be teaching from in a certain passage, and you would know what they were talking about. So having said that, I want you to listen for the words water and spirit as I read a passage from Ezekiel, this is in chapter 36, the Lord is speaking in Ezekiel and he says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Water, spirit, spirit. The teacher of Israel should have immediately remembered this Ezekiel passage. Jesus was in effect telling Nicodemus, think about what you know to be true in Ezekiel and I'm going to tell you what it means. And so Jesus gives a little Bible study here to Nicodemus about what's going on. You know, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Uh, that's somehow, I used to have a hard time wrapping my head around that, but this is a great example. You're thinking, hmm, what could he mean by water and the spirit? And we launch out into all of these crazy interpretations. But remembering how a Jew would have received this, we think, hmm, where do we read water and the spirit? You like that, touching the beard? I don't know why I did that, but anyway. Hmm. Uh, gestures are important, I find. Anyway, you find it in Ezekiel, and so it's really fascinating. He, there in Ezekiel, God promised Israel new spiritual life by transforming them from within. He said he would cleanse them from sin, the washing of the water by the word. He said he would regenerate their dead spirit, bringing them to life spiritually, and that God the Holy Spirit, his spirit, would come to live within them. And so this is what uh, I believe uh, Jesus was referring to. That which is born, verse 6, of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Flesh in this context means your natural state as a human being. You inherit a sin nature. I'm sorry you just did. Uh, When you were born, you were born hopelessly lost, a wicked sinner. In fact, you were conceived in the womb, a sinner. Uh, You inherited a sin nature from Adam and Eve. It is a fiction and a fantasy to think there is anything good or godly within you or that you can improve yourself enough to be right with the Lord. God must give you a brand new heart, a new nature, a spiritual nature that you don't have. Being born again is not a New Testament mystery belonging solely to the church. It was promised to Israel as a prerequisite for citizenship in God's kingdom. Jews and Gentiles must be born again. Now, Nicodemus was a deeply religious man. He had risen through the ranks to be a respected leader. He represents the finest person religion can produce. If you were to ask who is the you know, greatest person that religion ever produced, uh, you know, some might say Gandhi or this person or that person, but I would say it's Nicodemus because the religion that produced him was Judaism, uh, the, 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 you know, God's law. The, you know, this is the way I want you to relate to me, not some of these other things. And so, you know, Nicodemus is a great type. He teaches us also that religion cannot save you. Nicodemus was as far as you could get with religion, and Jesus said, you are light years away from the kingdom of God. No philosophy, no psychology, not politics, not mysticism, no meditation can save you. Jesus saves because he is the unique God-man who takes upon himself your sin and gives you his righteousness. His coming at night does suggest darkness. Without Jesus, human beings are simply groping in the dark. Everybody in all these other religions and isms and things, they are men and women groping in the dark, thinking that they have an answer but not knowing where they're going. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus could have discerned from the passage about water and spirit and getting a new heart that a total regeneration was necessary to hold citizenship in God's kingdom. So Jesus says, you shouldn't marvel about this. It's in my word. Ezekiel talked about this using different language. Now, Nicodemus wouldn't have used the language born again But hearing this could have been one of those aha moments. And we don't know to what extent that it may have been. You know, where where he had read Ezekiel his whole life. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, who we learn in the scriptures, spoke like no other man had ever spoken, opens up the word to him and says, what I'm telling you is what is going to happen in Ezekiel. And it's it's a kind of a mind-blowing moment. You are born of God the moment you believe. You're in the kingdom right now, not the literal physical on earth kingdom. That's coming at the second coming of Jesus. You're in the kingdom as a citizen right now, born of God, born again, if you've received the Lord. And now we're going to see born from above to express God's kingdom. So the discussion continued with an emphasis on being born from above. You'll see in these verses, like in 12 and 13, Jesus points to heavenly things and having come down from heaven. So you're getting a more heavenly perspective on this terminology. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. You can't tell where it's uh, coming from and where it goes. 
so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind was coming out of the northwest during that uh, windstorm we had a few weeks ago, remember that? And it blew down my palm tree and destroyed my shed. And I was so excited. I hated that palm tree and the shed was 40 years old and was barely alive. And uh, I got rid of everything in my yard that I was never gonna touch uh, because I'm a procrastinator. We heard this giant boom, we, you know, and, and we go out there and I'm looking right at it and I think, huh, what, what made that noise? Oh, maybe it's my 20 foot, 25 foot palm tree that uh, is you know, on my shed. I have a secret to share with you. I hope you won't hate me for saying this. I hate palm trees in California. Keep them in Hawaii where they belong or the tropicals. The other day we were driving the, the other day uh, and there's these palm trees, they're like, they seem like they're you know, to the sky, this little trunk and then there's a couple of leaves on top and I'm thinking, what good is that? Who wants that? Gosh, I'm sorry, I got just, just so personal, I'm sorry. Anyway, so the wind blows where you can't tell where it's going. I like to think that Jesus and Nicodemus were, as was the custom, sitting on a rooftop patio enjoying an evening breeze. The wind is invisible, but it creates effects that can be seen, such as the sound. The Holy Spirit in us is invisible, but we can see his effects in our lives and the lives of others. He encourages joy and self-sacrifice and Christ-likeness. He enables obedience to the word of God. He makes all the difference in the world to Christians. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Nicodemus had all of his life been taught that he was a saved Jew who must strive to be righteous by keeping God's law and all of the minutiae added by rabbis. Jesus' words were, to say the least, a hard pill to swallow. I don't know if any of you have done something your entire life and then found out it was useless and that you were starting from scratch. Nicodemus was in some respects not unlike the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote this in Philippians. He said, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And so Paul's saying, hey, I was better than Nicodemus. When you look at my Jewish heritage and, uh, you know, as far as we know, Nicodemus wasn't persecuting the church, but Paul was. He says, this is what I was trusting in. That's what I had lived my life for. And then he says, what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says, I came to Christ. I realized I needed to be born again. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And now I've done a, a 180. I'm not Saul anymore. I'm the great apostle Paul. He wouldn't call himself great, but we do. And so this is Nicodemus. Is he going to break through and become born again like Paul? For the meantime, it was hard for Nicodemus to wrap his mind around the thought that his pharisaical Jewishness was insufficient. You might use filters on your pictures when you upload them to social media. In fact, I know some of you do. It changes the way you look. Many things can act as filters through which we interpret God's word. They can change its meaning. 
I love to read systematic theologies, but there can, be, uh, there can never be one system devised by a man or men that can account for every nuance in God's word without changing the plain meaning of certain verses that don't fit their system. Because it's manly, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not from the Lord. I'm not saying we shouldn't study the Bible, that's pretty much our thing. We love to study the Bible, we try and study it and present it in a systematic way so that it all makes sense. But I'm talking about a system of theology developed by men that says we can answer anything in the Bible, bring it on. And a lot of it will make sense. There's many systematic theologies that are, are good insofar as they go. But eventually all of them hit a verse or a passage that doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, and some theologies say, well, in our theology, Jesus didn't die for everybody. He only died for the elect. So he can't be talking about the world here. There, he's not. Jesus died for the elect. There, we've solved it. Have you? I think you've just taken away the greatest Bible verse there is and the hope of millions of people. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not against it. We love theology. I love reading it. We, we try to be systematic. I don't want to contradict myself. I don't want to get up one week and say one thing and the next week say another. I'm just saying, overall, you can't trust in a single theology to answer everything because it's manward, not Godward. God is a lot smarter than us, and there are mysteries that we can't put together. And so we all have our filters. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Some of what Jesus was revealing was knowable. One of the filters that Nicodemus had was that the majority opinion among Jews was that the Messiah would be a military man. Israel assumed the Messiah's first accomplishment would be to free them from Rome. Next, he would establish God's kingdom. And so this made perfect sense. You're God's people. You've been promised an earthly kingdom. You're under oppression by Rome, and now the Messiah is on this hand, for if it is him, if he is, and so what's he going to do? Well, obviously he's going to overthrow Rome and set up the kingdom, because you read about that in the Old Testament. However, passages like those in Ezekiel seem to make it clear that inward change must occur first. What do you do with passages like that, that don't fit your kingdom now uh, systematic theology? You ignore them or you twist them to mean something else. And so it's easy for us to get the wrong focus. In fact, we do it all the time. We need to really try hard to come humbly to the word of God. I have biases. I have prejudices. I don't even know what they all are. And so don't think that you don't because you do. And, and just let God's word speak to you. Uh, I saw a meme the other day. The guy was sitting there with his Bible open and said, here's Frank getting his out of context scripture for the day. A lot of scriptures are taken out of context. For years I've used, and you used too, the, the famous line in Matthew, for where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. And that sounds so sweet, so precious. Thank you, Jesus. Until you read the rest of the verses before and after. It's a section on church discipline. And Jesus says, if a brother sins, go rebuke him. Take other people, rebuke him. If he won't, uh, you know, repent, take it to the church, kick him out of the church. For where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. In other words, I give you the authority to kick this guy out of the church. Thank you, Lord. I think I'll take that verse off of my life verse list, you know. So, because I don't want to fit in. 
I don't want to be in that context. So be careful. We all have these things that I, my daughter-in-law saved me one Christmas from the greatest embarrassment of my professional career. Uh, you, you ever in a hurry to get your Christmas cards done? We used to do them at Costco, you know, and have them printed everything. I'm like, hey, use this verse. This sounds great. So I got the cards, like 300 cards, gave one to Kelly, luckily, and she goes, um, do you realize that this is about John the Baptist and not Jesus? And I said, I meant it to be about John the Baptist. He should be celebrated too. Man, what a, what a maroon, a nimrod. I felt like a nimrod. All right, let's get back. Let's, let's study the Bible. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. In verse 2, Nicodemus said, we know, including his fellow Pharisees. Jesus had five disciples thus far. His we were Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And as I in indicated earlier, those guys were already more qualified to give testimony about the Messiah than any Pharisee. The signs Jesus were doing should have spoken for themselves that he was the Messiah. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, the son of man who is in heaven. One scholar makes sense of this saying this, the Judaism of Jesus' day circulated many stories of bygone saints who had descended into heaven and received special insight into God's ways and plans. Jesus insists that no one has ascended to heaven in such a way as to return to talk about heavenly things. Jesus can speak of heavenly things, not because he ascended to heaven from a home on earth and then descended to tell others of his experience, but because heaven was his home in the first place. He is the one who came down from heaven. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. The book of Numbers is set between the second and 40th years of the wandering of the Israelites. It records a lot of grumbling and complaining about their circumstances. If you know somebody who's grumbling and complaining, say, hey, I've got a passage for you. It's Numbers chapter 21. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Odd incidents in the Old Testament illustrate New Testament truths so that we can grasp them. Jesus pointed back to the serpent on the pole as a simple illustration having two components. First, to be saved and given physical life. All an Israel, uh, Israelite had to do was look at the serpent. It was an act of grace requiring no work on their part. And second, the serpent must be lifted up so all could see. Nicodemus was challenged to believe Jesus for spiritual birth in much the same way as the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the serpent for life. To be saved and given spiritual life, all a person has to do is look to Jesus. It's an act of grace. Jesus must be lifted up. Now, he tells us what that means later in the Gospel of John when he says, I, if I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. 
And so Jesus said, hey, in the Old Testament, as long as I'm teaching you things from the Old Testament, here's another little nugget. This episode with the brass serpent, salvation was by grace through faith. All they had to do was believe. And uh, they had, but they had to see the serpent lifted up and I am going to be lifted up when I am crucified. And by that, I will draw all men to myself. By the way, we mentioned systematic theology a while ago. This is another one of those odd verses. Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself. Certain theologies don't believe that. And they say, well, he didn't mean all. He meant only those that are in the group that he meant. And you're like, what? Certainly not everyone is saved, but when Jesus said, I draw all men to myself, there is sufficient power in the cross to save all men, even though not all men are saved because they refuse to acknowledge that. And so, again, just be careful. Uh, you, if somebody comes to you and says they understand everything in the Bible now, they don't. They don't understand the first thing, and that is to humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus's marvel makes it seem as though what Jesus was teaching is too deep to comprehend. It is, in fact, simple. The new heart promised Israel and all mankind is received by believing Jesus, available to all men everywhere, because he was lifted up on the cross. People always seem to know if you're from California. Maybe it's because you're not worried about earthquakes like they are. Uh, every time I travel someplace and they say, oh, you're from California, what about the earthquakes? And so I go with it now, and I say, yeah, about every 10 minutes. <laughs> it's hard. You notice I'm limping a little bit here because I just, you know, I'm, I'm not used to, you know, ground like this. I have to get my sea legs here in Kentucky because in California, you're just like on a tectonic plate all the time. Tell me about some of your hurricanes and floods and uh, cyclones and tornadoes because I'm not afraid of those at all, right? Only earthquakes that happen every now and then. Or you talk about getting a double-double the minute you land. And a lot of people don't know what you're talking about, right? Oh, man, I can't wait to get to in and out How good can a hamburger be? Well, hey, pretty darn good. <laughs> it was more important when it was only in California. I, I kind of, they're in Arizona. What are you doing in Arizona? Believers are from heaven. We haven't been there, but the Lord is there, and we are described as being seated with him in the heavenlies. The Lord has seated you right next to him. All of us, each one, in a mystical way, I don't understand everybody, every Christian is right next to the Lord. It's not like I'm a million people down, whispering in each ear, you know, asking for something, and by the time he gets to the Lord, he goes, Gene wants mozzarella sticks again for dinner? You know, that kind of a thing where it's like all twisted. You're right next to the Lord. The more you see yourself there and set all your affections there, the more you're going to express the kingdom to those who are groping in the dark for the light of the world. 